We do desire to honor your word, to reverence your name, and so we pray that even now you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to cause your word to sink deep within us, to overcome any resistance that we may have to it, but rather that we might embrace it and live it, that we might live to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to 1 Peter in chapter 4. I want to read verses 8 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Hear the word of God. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to linger in this passage as we've been here for a while, but this verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. But that first phrase, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. I'm still impressed how significant love is in the life of the Christian. Uh, Last week we reviewed some of that. The very fact that Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second great commandment was like the first, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. But interestingly, he ended all of that by saying, uh, this is, in essence, all the law and the prophets, which means that everything about the scripture points to these things that we're to love, that we're to love God and that we're to love each other. You remember that Jesus said that love was really the mark of the Christian. He said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Thus a new commandment I give you to love one another as I have loved you. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 said that the law can be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfilled the law. Do you remember that it was the Apostle John who said our assurance of being Christians is wrapped around our loving each other? For he said, by this you'll know that you have passed from death to life if you love each other. And so the significance of love is amazing. There's, there's no getting around it in the context of the life of the Christian. In fact, it's put very, very pointedly uh, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, in just the first few verses there. He writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Do you realize the significance of that? He's saying, if we really don't love, then no matter what we say, nothing is really communicated. It's just a gong or a clang. 
no matter how, how, how melodic it may be, no matter how beautiful it would otherwise sound, no matter how right it would otherwise be, if, if there's no love, then it just really doesn't communicate anything that it was meant to communicate uh, at all. In fact, he says, if I do not have love, then I am nothing. It just misses the whole mark of my humanness. If there isn't love, because you see, we've been created in the image of God, and God is love, and thus, if we aren't loving, then, then we're missing the very essence of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. He says, if love isn't behind the sacrifices that I make, if for some reason I'm making sacrifices for my own gain, if for some reason I'm making sacrifices because of my own pride, if, if for some reason I'm giving for other than love, then nothing is eternally gained by it. That's amazing. Uh, the, the linchpin to all of it is love. And love, of course, isn't easy because he goes on then to describe what love is. Verse it's patient and kind, doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Someone told me last Sunday, he was a military man, he said after hearing just that, it sounds like boot camp. Yes, I suppose. Love never ends, you see, love really is so significant in the whole life of the Christian that it can't be ignored. And if it is, if it isn't about us true, then can we claim the name of Christ? That's the question. Love is important, obviously, in the context of families. Uh, husbands must love their wives in a way that honors Christ, as Christ was love. As Christ has loved the church, the sacrifice that a husband makes for a wife is to be done in Love for her well-being, eyes off myself, eyes on her. How may I give so that she might live? That's the role of the husband. The role of the wife is to love the husband, to respect him in the position which God has given and to submit to him and to honor him. And she thus sacrifices for the love, if you will, of her husband. Parents are to love their children. Children are to love their parents. Parents, we in the context of the body of Christ must love each other in the midst of all that we do together, as we serve together, as we learn together, as we grow together. We must love each other, even in the midst of a tremendous diversity that exists uh, around us. And the diversity is increasing in the context of the life of our church, which is wonderful. The diversity culturally and ethnically, all our various backgrounds and personalities all coming together. And then God says, love each other in the midst of all of this. And that's so crucial, so important, and we really must, so much so, that if I had to say in the context of my own life, what is my most significant need? What do I really need, like breathing and water and food? I would say, I need to love. Because if I don't love, I'm missing the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I think I'm missing the very essence of what it means to have been created in the image of God. I'm missing the very essence 
of it really, of what it really means to be human. Now you would say, don't you think though that you really need to be loved? And of course I do. Of course we all need to be loved. In marriage, it's important for a wife to know that her husband loves her. It's important for a husband to know his wife loves him. It's important for children to know their parents love them. And children, it's very important for your parents to know that you love them. It's not always a parent, but uh, as a parent, but to a parent, while you're a parent. <laughs> That's enough on that. But it's important to be loved most certainly, so much so that God makes certain that human beings see his incredible love. And he did it by way of Jesus. He did it by way of the cross. The scripture says that God demonstrates his own love for us. That is, nobody else has this kind of love. This is a unique kind of love. This is a special kind of love. This is the kind of love that really can only be true in the context of God. This kind of love. Oh, we parent it and we mimic it and we model it and all those kinds of things and reflect it to some degree. But nobody loves the way that God loves. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, his enemies against him, he gave his one and only son. Christ died for us. That's amazing. On a human scale, the Apostle in Romans 5 says, you know, for a good man, for a righteous man, some human being might possibly think about dying. But God gave his son, most precious, while we were yet sinners. That's an amazing kind of love. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that, that nails us with that love, that brings that home to us, that puts it right deep in the context of our own hearts and our own lives so that we would know that God loves us. But it's interesting to me that as believers in Christ, that once we know that, the commandment isn't, now go out and make sure other people love you. But he says, above all else, keep loving each other earnestly. You see, because sin causes us to focus in on ourselves. And so what the work of Christ does, his love, is to transform us, to break us out of that. You know, Jesus had that wonderful graphic illustration of the log and the speck. And he used it in the context of uh, in the context of, of how it is we evaluate each other and judge each other. But we could also use it in this context as well. Because you see, when someone fails to love me on a scale of 1 to 10, it often feels like an 8. But when I fail to love someone else, it often feels to me, on a scale of 1 to 10, like a 2. Because, you see, we're so self-focused. The point is... I want God to say, now, Bill, make sure people love you. And he doesn't say that. He says, Bill, go out and love. That's to be the concentration of your, of your heart, is to be outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. You're not to keep score on how many people don't love you. You're not to keep score on, on how many times people have acts of love, or dislove, if you will, against you. But you are to be thinking about, how am I loving uh, others? That, you see is what's important. It's always interesting to me when I ask, 
And I, I don't know why I usually ask guys this question and not the women. But, but oftentimes when there's an engaged couple or a couple wanting to be engaged, I'll ask the guy, why do you want to marry her? And it's so interesting. Guys often say, because she's always there for me. Because I really need her. Or in the great line of Rocky Balboa, she fills my gaps. And I say, okay, what that tells me is you love being loved by her. But what I really want to know is, do you love her? Tell me what delights you about her. Tell me why it is that that you're delighted to sacrifice whatever it is that you need to sacrifice in the context of your life for her well-being. Tell me about that. Don't tell me that she loves you. I'm assuming that. It's surprising to me. But I want to know, do you love her? But you see, in the context of relationships, that's the focus of our attention, isn't it? Are they loving me? Am I feeling their love? Whereas the scripture continues over and over and over again, commandment after commandment after commandment to love. And I read the scriptures sometimes and I say, well, aren't they supposed to care about me? God says, I care about you. Is that enough? And he says, now I want you to image me. I want you to reflect me. I want you to love them like I've loved you. That, you see, is the very essence of your life. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he told them many things. But most significantly, it appears, he told them about love. That's when he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you're to love one another as I have loved you. Now that commandment wasn't new in one sense. It wasn't new in that that they had never been told to love each other before. I mean, the whole scripture is based and founded on love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So in that sense, loving other people wasn't new. What was new was the quality of it. What was new is love one another as I have loved you. Go out and love. And of all the things that Jesus told them that night. He emphasized that one over and over again. And in the midst of his discussion of that, he said to them, I'm telling you these things, that is to love each other, I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be made complete. You see, the very joy of Jesus was loving And our joy is when we're loving. You see, when we live a self-focused life, we will be utterly miserable and never satisfied. There's a rule of thumb in ministry that I shouldn't tell you. But I'll tell you. It's one of my rules. I always tell my staff this. Tell elders this. Tell everybody this. If you're in ministry, you'll know this. If you do ministry, you'll know this. When you're in a situation and you bend over backwards for demanding people, they'll never be happy. Demanding people are generally never happy. They're never satisfied. Because the focus is on themselves so much that even if you give in and give them the the farm, they're still not happy. 
Because their expectations are so high, their, their focus is so. But when you find a person who isn't self-focused and you ignore them, they're happy. Because they're not thinking about what isn't he doing for me or what aren't they doing for me. They're, they're still happy. It's pretty amazing. To understand that one of the great dangers of a vacation is that you become so self-focused that you become miserable after a while. You know, one of the great dangers about Christmas morning for children is that become, they become so self-focused about what they're getting is that by the middle of the day, they're just a mess. You want to know one of the most difficult things about being a college student is that it's by definition, by nature, a time of self-focus. That your whole life is thinking about what am I going to do when I graduate? What can I major in so that I can do what I want to do when I graduate? And even ministry, is there are whole ministries geared to focus attention on students so that after a while they get so self-focused that oftentimes they become miserable. Unless there's an outlet for that. Do you know one of the great difficulties of having a debilitating illness? Is it because of the very nature of it? It's almost impossible not to become self-focused. But the happiest people who have debilitating illnesses are those who try to get around that and love somebody else. Even if it's just being nice to the nurse who comes in and have that be the focus of your attention during that moment in time, I'm not going to complain, I'm going to be nice, no matter how hard that must be because you're in so much pain. Trust me, that brings joy. Self-focusedness, even if it's normal and natural and expected, brings misery. Do you know why persecuted Christians who receive no love but who love their enemies can be filled with joy? Because they're loving. And that brings them joy, even when they're not being loved by anybody else. In fact, I would venture to say Never heard anybody ever say this before, so I'm just venturing to say it. Usually before I say anything like this, I find it in two other people that I find credible. <laughs> That's subjective. But, um, but I venture to say this, that a person who is well-loved by others, but not loving towards others, is less happy than the person who isn't loved by anybody, but loves. Does that make sense? See what I'm saying? You see, because I really believe, and I'm running this through my own life, so you have to go with me on this. I'm running this through on my own life, that if I had to list my needs, I would actually agree with Ringo Starr, who in a song once said in a different context, I need somebody to love. I mean, that's just true. That's a need that we have. If we don't... I just embarrassed my wife. I, I, I just... I shouldn't quote Ringo, I guess. But... Okay, Rocky, I'm sorry. But anyway. 
I know they're still alive. I shouldn't quote people who are still alive. But the... Um, <laughs> But that's a need that I have. And if I don't fulfill that need in terms of, 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 of loving someone else, I might as well be dead. Because I'm nothing. Because I've been created to image God who is love. But I venture to say, because I know I gave myself this quiz, I venture to say, if you hadn't heard this, and you went through way and someone asked you, do you have a great need to be loved? You would say, oh yes, that's a great need that every human being has to be loved. And God knows that and he fulfills that. And then he says to us, now if you're going to be in my image, what you really need is to love. And if you don't, you'll be miserable. That's why I think, and that's why I come back to this, that's why I think that Peter says to us, above all else, keep loving. Because once you stop that, You've lost it all. And of course, there's a pattern in, in all of this, in that God does and we respond. God does, initiates, moves, transforms, and we follow. And thus, you see, even Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since... You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but as of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He's saying, listen, I give you this commandment because you've been born again. Because you've been transformed. And so you really can. And this is the very source of your joy and your life. First John in chapter 4, the Apostle John writes this. Verse Seven, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God has done it. And now we image Him. So if you're unhappy, if you lack joy, if you're miserable, it may be that you're too self-focused. I remember once a guy, actually a relative of mine, was exhausted, very tired. So he made an appointment to see the doctor. And he was anticipating that the doctor would say, you need to get more rest, you need to take some time off of work, and you need to relax. And when he went to the doctor, the doctor said, you know what you need? You need more exercise. And I think Dr. Jesus sometimes says to us, what you need is to, as a friend of mine once said, get over yourself. And to love. And you'll be happy, much more content. And so Peter then goes on and he says, we need to love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, when people sin against us, that is, we perceive they're not loving towards us. What we want is sympathy. 
What we want is to be able to say, oh, so-and-so hurt me, and another person pats you on the side and say, oh, that's really too bad. And, and that's all right. You, everybody needs a few people like that in their life that will do that for them from time to time. But what you need is to love them. That very one who hasn't loved you. And to express that in forgiveness. That's what you need. That's what will make you happy. Until that point comes, you'll continue to be miserable. Until that point comes, you'll continue to be bitter, increasingly so. When the point of forgiveness comes, that expression of love, you're free. And it is amazing. It's also counterintuitive, but it's amazing how that works. I talked about that last week, so I won't linger too much there. Next point, he says, in First Peter, I better get there, First Peter 4, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time here, but as Peter exhorts the church to be hospitable to one another as an expression of love, he's, he's in a sense saying, I want you to be welcoming people. He's not telling everybody in the church that you have to open your home and have 20 people over for lunch today. Or, that's not his point of hospitality there. If you want to do that, I'm sure there are people who love to come. But, but the point is, he's saying, I want you to be welcoming people. I want you to show each other the love of Christ, that, that you're a body together and to welcome each other into each other's lives However that may, whatever form that may take. It may simply be on a Sunday morning and you need to ask yourself the question, am I a hospitable person? When people come into this place which you would call your church, our church, are you hospitable to them? You, do you say hi to them? And, and you may say, well, nobody says hi to me. And I'd say, I think you missed it. See, what you need is not somebody to say hi to you. What you need is to say hi to somebody else. That would really satisfy your soul. Do you understand that generally speaking, friendly people are always feeling welcomed? Friendly people are almost always feeling welcomed. When Karen and I go to a big convention, we don't do it very often, we go to a big convention, my wife walks into, I, should, I, I shouldn't use this, I'm sorry, but my wife walks into those conventions and says, ah, oh, 1,500 new friends. And we'll be sitting there sometimes and say, you want to go to lunch with those people over there? And I say, I don't know those people. She said, well, we could get to know them. And she's exactly right. That's being hospitable. Being hospitable is even when you're new to be the person who knows really what brings joy is saying hi. That brings more joy than being said hi to. But in our sin... And so what happens? We walk around saying, nobody said hi to me, nobody said hi to me. Our face gets longer and longer. People look at you, oh, ooh, I don't want to say hi to them. <laughs> nobody says hi. We better leave them alone. They look sad today. We'll just leave them alone. Right? Being hospitable. But you see, hospitality in a very real sense is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. So much so that, that in God's economy, its drama is huge. For instance, in Matthew in chapter 25, verse 31, we read this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from 
one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left and the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me I was naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me I was in prison and you came to me Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. On the one hand, that's simply hospitality. It's graciousness. To another in need. And Jesus speaks very pointedly. He says, these who are in need are my brothers. That is, other believers. And the rest of the story, you know, I suspect. It's those who do not treat kindly the brothers of Jesus. Other believers. Believers. And they prove themselves not to be believers. And they're cast into hell. Peter says what you really, really, really need is to love each other. And then he says that expression of love can also take this point of serving one another. But then again, amazingly, he says God gives us gifts to do that. We're just not simply left alone. He says, uh, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, this little word gift, as many of you know in Greek, it's simply the word charisma. The word charis means grace. It's something that's a result of God's gift to you, God's grace to you. He says, I'll grace you in order to serve one another. In, in fact, this grace, these gifts are varied grace or manifold grace. Whatever little nuance needs to happen in this situation, God is able to give grace to fit just that thing. He says, I want you to step out as an expression of love to each other as you're continuing to love each other earnestly. And I want you to use all these gifts which I have given to you. And these gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us, are given as the Holy Spirit wills. That is, they're real gifts. They're nothing that we've earned. They're real gifts. That he gives them to us as he desires. They may not be the gift we may want at the moment. <clears throat> I've never known anyone to be to have martyrdom as a high gift. But, but, but it may be the gift that's necessary at the moment. And the scripture says that they're given, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, that they're given for the common good. The essence being they're not necessarily given for your good, because you're using them to love. That the good that you receive out of them is to be able to share them and give them from Christ so that someone else is benefited, someone else is, is helped. That's your expression of, of, of love to them. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we use these gifts to serve one another. And he just breaks them down into two large categories. There are the gift lists throughout the scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Ephesians chapter 4 and 
Romans chapter 12. He just gives two broad categories because he's not into detail at the moment. But he's saying, listen, if if you're one who speaks, and that's a gift that God has given so that you can speak to others in need and pass along the very love of God to them, you speak, understand that that you are to speak the truth about God, the very words of God, the very oracle of God, oracles of God. Not in the same sense that Moses and Isaiah did. People don't hear what you say and open up their Bible to the last chapter of Revelation and write it down and go, oh, I got it. But what you say, you see, he says, to make sure that what you say is consistent with the truth in Scripture. That's the very wisdom of God to them. But understand that this is a gift that you have been given to pass along to someone else. And so as you encourage them, encourage them with the word of God, the very truth of God. If they're lost, speak to them the very word of God so they can, they can know the truth and come to faith. If they're confused about life, all of that, make certain that you speak the very truth of God so they can hear it and be unconfused and can have the mind of Christ. And then he says, if you serve in various ways, people serve in various ways, whether they help administer, whether they provide mercy, whether they give uh, financial help, whether they come in in a very hands-on way, move a wall or put a wall up or make a meal or hold a head or whatever it may happen to be. He says, if you're serving one another, then he says, I want you to serve in such a way that you're serving by the strength that God supplies because it's a gift. It's something that comes from God. And you may say, "Well, well, then how do I know what my gift is? How do I find it? How do I use it? I mean, that's the question. Before I tell you how, let me tell you the danger of the question. See, the danger of the question is that you may become very self-focused in your pursuits. And you may care more about your gift than about helping someone else. You may say, how could that be? And I would just smile and let you think about yourself for a while as I think about myself for a while. And they'd all know how that can be. Right? Because we're naturally self-focused. So there's some danger there. You need to be careful too because gifts may change. They may vary for a particular purpose and need. Because you see, we're to be stewards of them, which means we never really own them. They're just given to us so we can distribute them to someone else. So we mustn't ever get too possessive of these gifts so that they overtake our own identity. We're just sinners saved by grace, stewards of this gift of grace for another. So you need to be careful in that regard as well. And you have to be careful that once you find such gift or gifts that you don't let it keep you from other kinds of ministry. You say, well, I have the gift of giving, but I don't change diapers. Maybe changing diapers would be very good for you. Probably help you give more. You'd buy stuff for the nursery, more rubber gloves. I have the gift of teaching. I'm sorry, I can't help you move. (laughs) I can explain it to you, but... (laughs) No, that's not why these gifts are identified and given so it can keep us from ministry. It's just so that in various ways, in various ways, we might be able to help in particular situations. And don't ever think that once you've found your gift, it's going to make ministry in your life easier. I don't think when Paul was being stoned, I don't think he said, it's a good thing I have the gift of apostleships, or these would really hurt. No, it doesn't make it any easier. 
it's still difficult. If you have the gift of administration, it doesn't mean calling a hundred people to try to find volunteers for a particular thing is going to be easy. But what you're trusting is that you're going to call a hundred people and God will move. Trust me, whatever gift I have is my joy and the bane of my existence. This isn't easy. <laughs> whatever this is. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And you know that. And so once gift, gifts are identified in the context of your life, it doesn't necessarily mean the ministry is going to, be, going to be easy or even just sort of specified in that one particular area. So you say, okay, then knowing all that, how do I find my gift? Well, the first step is not to concentrate too much on it. Not to concentrate too much on finding your gift, but rather concentrate on loving people. Open your eyes. Don't look within and try to find a gift. Open your eyes and look around and see what's going on in the lives of people. You see, there's no numerical coincidence that 1 Corinthians 13 is between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are about gifts. Why did Paul stick love in the middle? Well, he said why he stuck love in the middle. Because when he was talking about gifts, he ended that first section by saying, now let me show you a more excellent way, which is not to worry about the gifts, but to love each other. Because you see, when we begin to love each other, do you know what's going to happen? We're going to begin to see needs in people's lives. And you know what's going to happen when we see needs in people's lives? Two things. One, we're going to become overwhelmed by them. I don't know anybody who does any kind of ministry whether it's changing diapers in the nursery. In fact, if that's one of your, your, your gifts, you'll be overwhelmed here. Because we have so many babies. And we're getting more. No matter what your ministry is, first you'll become overwhelmed. And second, your heart will break. And when you become overwhelmed and your heart begins to break, then you'll hit your knees. And that's where you find it. As you begin to pour out your heart to God, saying, Oh God, there are lost people. Could you send somebody to them with the gospel? He's likely to gift you then. But if you're saying, Oh, there's lost people, I'll go talk to them about Jesus, because, well, we all have to. Don't expect any great gift till you love them. You look at people in financial needs, Oh God. Isn't there a way we can help them? Isn't there a way? I expect gifts as you love them, you see. That's where it happens. And it's varied, manifold grace and manifold gifts. You may, get, you may not get all that's necessary. You may find yourself getting involved in a particular ministry in the context of people's lives and, and, and you may have a piece of it but you're still overwhelmed and then you begin to pray that God would give more gifts to other people who would show up and help in the context of this as well because there's so much more that needs to be done. And you may never lose the feeling of being overwhelmed. And you may never lose, I suspect, the feeling of having a broken heart. That's all to keep you on your knees. So the gifts keep coming so that you minister in the strength 
which God supplies. So to the end of the day, he is the one who's glorified. Because you look and see at what's happened. Someone got saved. Who gets the credit for that? Somebody's life is transformed. Who gets the credit for that? As I was typing this up, I looked, my eyes caught a book in my library at home. The title of the book is An Inquiry into the Nature of the Wealth of Nations by a dead guy named Adam Smith. And I was reminded on capitalism in the marketplace that he says something to this effect that we do not get our meat and bread from the benevolence of the butcher and the baker. Rather, we get it from their own self-interest. That is, in their own self-interest to provide bread and meat for us. And it's a system that works very efficiently and very effectively. It's still amazing to me that when I want bread or milk or anything, I go to the grocery store and it's there. And I never even told anybody. That's because somebody has a self-interest to get it there for me. And so I give them money, but I don't say thank you. Because my money should suffice to satisfy their self-interest, which was their motive after all. But the body of Christ is not that way at all. It is by benevolence. It is by love. Did you ever notice that when you're praying for something that you need, God gives it to somebody else? You need money, somebody else gets a raise. You need encouragement, somebody else becomes happy as they can be. You need to have assurance of your salvation. Somebody else is walking around in great freedom in Christ. God does that all the time. And so when he gives somebody else what you need, he gives it to them with the proviso that says, now go love somebody with this. I just gave you more. I I just supplied you. Now go love somebody with this. That's the way the body of Christ works. And so when you're sitting there and you've got from God. Is that just for you to keep? And say, oh, this really makes me happy. Or is there somebody out there to love? You want to be filled with joy. You want to be really human. You want to be one who images God. That's the one who loves. And at the end of the day, Who is thanked? God is. You thank him because you know he did it. And they thank him because they know he brought it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us that I would be, we would be lovers. That we would love people as you have loved us. That we would love other people in the body of Christ as you have loved us. In our Lord Jesus. Father, we we know that's our need. I pray that we take the focus off ourself. Who's loving us and who isn't. Who's being nice and who's not. And that we would love. And Father, I pray then that we would be great testimonies. To say that's really what brings joy. Jesus was really right. 
thank you for loving us. None of this would make sense. None of this would even be on our radar screen had you not so thoroughly loved us and we weren't so thoroughly secure in your love that now we can be free to love even our enemies. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The um, ordination service will begin in about 15 minutes. <laughs> and if you love Chad, you'll really stay. <laughs> That's the most, one of those really guilt-inducing things, isn't it? But it'll work. Uh, but so anyway, the ordination service will start in about 15 minutes. Uh, the response to the benediction... It's a very simple yet profound one. It's hallelujah, amen. See, the whole point of this is that God would be glorified. The whole point of everything that he does and works in us and we work out and all of that is that he would be praised. And the word hallelujah means simply praise. Be to God. So we say hallelujah, amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.